This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 32, our discussion with Stephen Harrison about what we learned at the Easel Congress 2023 and the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions about drug development, plus a vault episode addressing a similar topic after last year's ILC Congress, the one now known as the Easel Congress, also featuring Stephen and Jorn Schottenberg. The conversation moves on from Resmeterong to discuss other classes of drugs, starting with what Mazen Nouradine described in the previous week's episode as the most valuable properties in the game he called Nash Monopoly, FGF21s and glucagon agents. Stephen Harrison starts this discussion with two comments about GLP-1s. First, we now have adequate data to suggest that GLP-1s will not melt away all over fat and, as a result, lead to dramatic fibrosis regression. Second, we know from a small sub-cohort of patients in a Kirosymmetry trial that patients already on fairly low doses of GLP-1s saw what Stephen described as incredible added incremental benefit from the FGF-21 agent defruxafurin. The group notes that while glucagon dual and treble agents are likely to produce dramatically more robust results in weight loss and liver deep fatting than GLP-1s alone, they still seem unlikely to, as Stephen puts it, usurp the need for other types of agents. I comment that the commercial development paths some of the drug companies are taking with glucagon agents support this hypothesis. From here, the group moves on to discuss the FGF21 class. Stephen notes the two drugs, afrexafermin previously and pagosafermin in an important late breaker at the Easel Congress, have demonstrated significant efficacy against fibrosis, as has a Boston Pharmaceuticals agent in stage 2B development. The first two have demonstrated robust efficacy, as I say, in F2 and F3, and also in some well-compensated F4 patients in sub-evaluations and smaller trials. Stephen shares his belief that the two drugs will be able to regress fibrosis in a controlled cirrhotic population. As the conversation ends, all three of us agreed that earlier, more aggressive screening to arrest cirrhosis will become pivotal and will not occur until a drug that can aid compensated cirrhosis patients in regressive fibrosis is approved. Our entire key leader, opinion, and advocate team has been struck forcibly by how many studies provided significant advances in knowledge and how some of these advances might change our underlying understanding of drugs, diagnostics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, how we think about the disease, let alone how we treat it once drugs are approved. It's quite a lot to digest and very excited to consider, particularly an episode like this that talks about drugs that might come in the next couple of years. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. When we talked with Mazen last week, he talked about his um, drug development Nash's monopoly metaphor. And the idea that the two most valuable properties were the FGF21s and the GLP1s, each of which had some really interesting issues emerged from uh, last month, or, or the glucagon agonist more broadly, if you will. So w- we can dive into either one of those. Take your pick. Stephen Harrison. It's interesting to talk about both. To me, just reflecting back on Easel, one of the points I walked away from that meeting with was that at least at diabetic doses of GLP-1, we're not getting rid of all the fat. We're not getting rid of inflammation and fibrosis. And these drugs that you mentioned, to include resmeterone, are additive on top of these particular GLPs dosed in the diabetic range. We also know from the FGF21 data that was not presented at Easel, but I'm very hopeful will be presented at AASLD this year, is the cohort D data from the Symmetry trial, where we actually took 31 patients that were on a baseline stable dose of a GLP. And again, most of these were diabetic doses and were randomized to placebo FGF21 or FGF21 on top of the GLP-1. And, and the additive incremental value was incredible when you put the two together. So I think 
to me, the take home point is the GOPs are, are coming to the forefront as a very active player in the field of obesity and even diabetes and ultimately CV risk reduction. I get that. Most of my patients are already on them. If they're not on them, quite frankly, I'm putting them on them. Um, I probably prescribe more semaglutide and terzepatide each week than I do ursodiol or some antiviral or anything else. It's just very, very common. But what I've learned is this disease, NASH, is so heterogeneous that taking a drug like a GLP that has no receptors in the liver and expecting it to deliver the mail on improving histopathology across the board in these patients is probably a bridge too far. Now, combining it with a GIP or a glucagon, the jury's still out for me on that. I mean, we have studies with pimpadutide combining a glucagon with a GLP. Obviously, there's work underway with terzepatide. We got triple combos coming both oral and injectable. So we'll have to wait and see. But I'm a complete believer that this class of medicine is not going to usurp the need for targeting inflammation, targeting mitochondria in the liver, targeting fibrosis in the liver, or a combination of those. And that ultimately, we are, we are still going to need combination therapy. And we're going to need multiple different choices on the shelf to choose from to manage these patients. And that's before we even talk about the side effect profiles of these injectables or, or even the GLP orals, which were presented at the ADA recently. Yeah, so A, I don't know that I could agree more with everything you just said if I tried. But B, one of the things I found really telling is you take a look at the Lilly development path for terzepatide. They're approved in obesity. They've got four separate indications they're listing on pipeline in phase three, and they have NASH in phase two. And the things they're listing in phase three mostly well, one is ejection fraction, which is different, but the others are all to build a stronger case around obesity, cardiovascular outcomes, morbidity, mortality, and obesity. And I forget what the third one is off the top of my head. Sleep apnea, right? Right, right, right. Thank you. None of which have anything to do with NASH. So given the size of the NASH market and the NASH population, you would think if they were confident that what they had there was a winner, that would have gone earlier. That's a gift, not a glucagon, but go, go ahead, Jorn. Jorn Schottenberg. Yeah, the one thing I, and I didn't have a chance to uh, discuss this with uh, Stephen yet. I, you know, I, I said that last week too. I don't think that that treating obesity by itself is curing the fibrogenic burden in the liver. While it might add to the defattening effect, I still uh, think we need more liver-directed drugs, um, which might be in the dual agonists with the glucagon receptors, but I think still there's room for more, and I, and I think we're nicely aligned on this. Not always sure the um, investment strategies of a company or decisions are reflecting the effectiveness of the drug, but I, I think you really have to go into the population and do the trial if you want to find out. So, you're having done a lot of marketing research on that in my last career, what it tended to reflect was a combination of three things, a competitive uniqueness, probability of success, and size of opportunity. Okay. Size of opportunity in NASH is so vast that you would think anything that had high probability of success with competitive uniqueness would get greenlit. In fact, one of the things we used to do was tell people, change your, change your order of indication out when you're planning for phase two, because this is a much bigger opportunity than you realize it was, and you're more unique than you think. So I agree with you. You can't infer everything from that, but I wasn't the only person 
person who figured this out 10 years ago. And everybody that we worked with subsequently figured out, found a way to figure it out without working with me. But you're probably right. And I won't argue with you on that lifetime experience. So on a commercial level, I take a look at that and I say, if these guys thought Nash, well, when we started talking about this, uh, for, when I came to this space four to five years ago, people told me if you could affect the 10% reduction in uh, body weight, you could you could auto- automatically affect significant reduction in fibrosis. That If, if that were the case, then I would think that uh, there would be a different pathway, uh, a different, different stage of clinical trials. Automatic is a strong word. We would think that with 10% body weight reduction, you would begin to impact inflammation. That would have downstream impacts on fibrogenesis. But there are multiple other ways that activate stellate cells, right? It's not just simply a matter of losing weight. So there's more to the story here. And is the data promising? Absolutely. I mean, the data presented at ADA is landmark. I mean, if we could get an oral triple combo with a lot of our patients achieving 20% weight loss, count me in. I, I'll prescribe that to my patients. I, I think it's terrific. But but one thing we don't talk about is the AE profiles. We're, we're talking about route of administration, but we're not making the AE profile better when we're doing that. So that's still a struggle. 30% of our patients are going to not be able to tolerate these drugs for the long term, and and we're going to need additional therapy. So people that want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, we're done, we've got an obesity drug, it's oral, it treats, you know, it can be used by everybody for every indication. It cures everything from uh, obesity to heart disease to kidney disease and cancer. Well, then that's just a bridge too far for me right now. I do think that a lot of positive, if I could shift gears a bit in the next couple of minutes, I, I do think it's worth talking about the FGF21 class of drug. This drug was kind of, it, it got a black eye, I think, early on because of the Peg-Belferman data that came out of, you know, in the literature and two different publications in, in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology because it wasn't effective and there was some concerns about tachyphylaxis. It's important to note that not all FGF21s are created equal and there was distinct differences in Peg-Belferman relative to what we see now with Afruxafermin and Pagosafermin and even Boston Pharma's drug that doesn't have a name yet that I'm aware of, but is in phase 2B development. What we're seeing with the data coming out with the CARO and, and the Harmony trial and with Pagosafermin and the Enliven trial is that 24 weeks of therapy with repeat liver biopsy, both of these drugs are having impacts on NASH resolution and fibrosis. And even even in cirrhotics. Now, the trials weren't designed for cirrhotics, but you have two different drugs studied in two different populations of patients, both with a subset that had cirrhosis on histopathology interpretation that improved between 30 and 45% of cases improved by at least one stage after 24 weeks of therapy. Now, I'm not saying that 24 weeks of therapy is enough for a cirrhotic. I'm not saying that you're going to see 30 to 45 response rates. What I'm saying is this is the first data we have ever seen with any mechanism of action where two different drugs have shown benefit in a relatively short period of time in a well-compensated F4 population. We didn't see that with Simtuzumab, Solancertib, Imricosan, Sinecrivirac. I could go on and on. Intercepts drug just didn't show it. Regardless of where this all pans out, juxtaposing a GLP or a GLP GOP GIP or a GOP glucagon GIP versus an FGF21, I think the FG 
GF21s have the horsepower needed, albeit maybe longer treatment duration than 24 weeks, but I believe they have the horsepower needed to target a well-compensated F4 population and show fibrosis regression. I think we'll hear good data come out of symmetry. I'm anxious to see that data from Acaro. And I think we should engage with the FDA to look at regression of fibrosis in a cirrhotic population as a subpart H approvable endpoint. And I think that's a distinct difference between the whole and Cretan group of drugs versus the FGF21s. But you have to have balanced potency. You have to hit beta-clotho FGF1, 2, and 3. You can't just hit one as was shown with, you know, really the Peg-Belferman data. But assuming you're right, okay, and those are the patients most in need of help who are helpable, right? I think that's been the assumption from day one. Well, it's the it's the patients that are in huge need of help. It's the patients that are the quickest, that, that have the most urgent need of help as well. Quite frankly, we have been dealing with an increasing burden of NASH, meaning an increasing number of people progressing to cirrhosis that are presenting for the first time to the ER in a decompensated state. So yeah, this is a huge unmet medical need. Well, it's, it's actually two needs. One is the need to prevent people from getting to a decompensated state. And the second is to take a lot more seriously screening people before that. Because the only way to stop people from getting to a decompensated state is figuring out who they are first and then getting them drugged. And we're not going to be serious about screening until we have the drug approved. That is a very good comment and very important. Um, I agree. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at servingnash.com. Next week, we will be back with other key opinion leaders to discuss a different aspect of what we learned from EASL and ADA. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.